Psalm 57 through 15. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle of a thousand hills. I know every beard in the mountains. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice, thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call on me in the day of trouble. I deliver you and you will honor me. Creator God, you lay claim to every ounce of this universe. There is not one bit of this universe that exists that you don't lay claim to. And so God, I pray that we would just appreciate um, all that you have created and all that exists by your hand and your hand alone. And God, we would just honor you and your authority by submitting ourselves to your lordship. Um, Lord, you already lay claim to every one of us in this room. But Lord, I pray that we would, by way of our free will, would place ourselves in submission to your authority, seeing it as good and right and in our best interest to do so. And Lord God, I pray that in following you as our Lord and Savior, that we would appreciate what you call us into. Lord, a, a life according to your commands, a life lived for your kingdom, and that God, when when spiritual dilemmas come our way, when when we're kind of thrown when we're kind of thrown into a frenzy, Lord God, we don't have to be shaken or, or stirred up, um, but we just simply have to obey the commands that you've uh, provided us and obey the conscience that you have given us and developed within us by way of your Word. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us tonight, uh, teach us what it means to follow you and to surrender our rights. Uh, continuing this theme to see what reward there is for us in heaven. Um, God, would you bless our time together as we worship you in spirit and truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, my wife made dinner for me. Now, just want a full disclaimer. I love my wife. She's an amazing cook, right? If you've had her cooking, you know this to be true. Uh, but a few weeks ago, she tried something different on me. And uh, I, I Truth be told, I wasn't interested in the slightest. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this. Um, have you ever had couscous? All right, I want to personally shepherd your soul real quick. Don't waste your time on couscous, okay? I'm, I'm, I don't know if that's a rough spot. I don't know. I just was not clicking with the couscous. Uh, I'll stick with my deluxe mac and cheese, right? Amen? Okay. Okay. Uh, but with this, have you ever been a guest over at someone's house for dinner and they place something, some food in front of you and you just have zero interest in eating it? You find yourself in a dilemma at dinner. I don't want to be rude, so I'll eat it. 
right? People are, people are watching. They're starting to stare at me and giggle because they know I'm not interested. I got to take a bite or the host will be upset, right? And we start to kind of consider, have all these considerations for what we should or shouldn't do in this dilemma at dinner. Well, the Apostle Paul entertains a, a scenario like this in our passage tonight. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to help them become more unified. Uh, he handles several issues that were reported to him with careful attention. Uh, and his answers to some of their questions uh, seem complex. But that is because he nuances his teaching to help them see each other's unique perspective. We have seen that with their question about sex as well as food offered to idols. Last week, we read Paul's bad examples from the history of God's people in the wilderness during the Exodus. And from these examples, we were warned that God is faithful to overthrow those who desire evil. But He is also faithful to help us overcome temptation in our lives. After urging the church in Corinth to flee idolatry, he concludes his answer to this question about whether or not they can eat meat offered to idols. So with that, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verses 23 uh, through chapter 11, verse 1. God's Word says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let me pray for us. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your special revelation, um, Lord, to show us the means of salvation and the way of Christian living. And so God, I pray that you would bless us tonight uh, to show us how we are to live in the midst of a, a spiritual dilemma um, that may come our way. Uh, Lord, would you bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight's sermon title is A Dilemma at Dinner. A Dilemma 
at dinner. Tonight, I'd like to use this scenario that Paul introduces to help us determine what it is that we should consider when we find ourselves in some type of spiritual dilemma. What do I mean by spiritual dilemma? Well, I want to give you some examples of what a spiritual dilemma might entail. Should I accept someone's invitation to go to their non-Christian religious service? Should I be active on that particular social media platform? Should I watch that particular movie or that TV show? Should I be subscribed to that news outlet? Should I drink a glass of wine at dinner? Should I accept the invite to go to a pub for someone's birthday party? Should I share with someone how I disagree with the pastor? Should I eat what's placed in front of me at dinner in someone else's home? And so these are just examples that kind of get us thinking about what could this spiritual dilemma be that comes up to kind of throw ourselves into a scenario so that we would be prepared to be able to take that spiritual dilemma on with five considerations when we find ourselves in a spiritual dilemma. That's what I want to give you tonight from the text is five considerations when you find yourself in a spiritual dilemma. The first, consider what you know to be true. Consider what you know to be true. We see this in verses 23 through 26. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Uh, Paul again quotes a well-known Corinthian saying. You, you caught it there. All things are lawful. He says it repeatedly. All things are lawful. The, the culture in Corinth was much like ours today in that it put a high value on personal liberty. Now, that is not to say that there were no laws in Corinth. There were. But there was an abundance of freedom to pursue human flourishing wherever one could find it. And so how do you talk a culture down from this freedom that actually in many ways serves to enslave? Well, if you're a rhetorician like Paul, you use phrases and the sayings of the people to reorient them back to the Bible, which is why he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He did something similar back in chapter 6 when he was urging the church to flee sexual immorality or porneia, as it is in the Greek. He said this, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Some of the Christians in the church were using prostitutes to alleviate their bodily appetites because they thought it was a matter of indifference for Christians like it was the rest of the culture. And of course, Paul teaches them how what they do with their body is actually of the utmost importance to God. 
Because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, lives and dwells within the believer, making them a temple for the living God. And so here in chapter 10, Paul is using the same phrase to reiterate that just because you can doesn't mean you should. God is not foremost for your bodily pleasure. God is not concerned primarily with relieving your pain. God is primarily concentrated on your personal holiness. God is secondarily concentrated on your personal witness. Those are the things of the utmost importance to our triune God. And that's why Paul redirects the Corinthians to do that which is helpful. Do that which builds up. Christians are people who focus not on ourselves, but on the king and his kingdom. So we live out the laws of his kingdom. And the neat thing about living according to the laws of God's kingdom is that it makes us remarkably happy. It leads to immense pleasure. And ultimately, it alleviates all the pain and trauma that we endure on this earth. So what do we know to be true? Christians are commanded to live out the teachings of Jesus Christ and the whole of Scripture. And what does the Apostle Paul say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? It's something awfully lot like Jesus' teaching, isn't it? In verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So if we can apply that truth to our lives and live it out, it would be this. We are never more like Christ and obedient to Christ than when we are putting others before ourselves. I'm going to say that again because that's good, y'all. We are never more like Christ and obedient to Christ than when we are putting others before ourselves. And Jesus modeled his own teaching perfectly, didn't he? By being obedient to the Father and dying for the sins of the world, your sins and mine, that whosoever would confess that he is Lord would be saved. What we know to be true is that we have to choose the well-being of others over our own personal preference or pleasure. And we see how this plays out in a dilemma at dinner. Paul has taught about eating meat sacrificed to idols at pagan temples in the chapters leading up to this passage. He applies the principle of being others-focused in a hypothetical scenario. If we as Christians are to be more concerned for the good of our neighbor than our own good, then we should feel free to eat whatever is placed in front of us to eat in another person's home. It would be unkind or offensive to enter into a theological debate about the food and where it came from. It would hinder your relationship unnecessarily to put a host on the spot about his or her inclination to get meat at the pagan temple where it's cheaper than the meat market where it's more expensive. Instead, the Christian should eat 
trusting something else they know to be true. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul is quoting Psalm 24 verse 1 here. Uh, It's a psalm all about the king of glory, right? The king we sang about. And it's it's similar to another psalm uh, that we actually had read uh, by Michael in Psalm 50, uh, which reads, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Is mine. If our God lays claim to the entire earth, he lays claim to everything in it that exists. The meat that we eat is God's. Praise the Lord. The Corinthian who enters another person's home for dinner can enjoy the meal because they consider what they know to be true. And so we can know some of these same things, a few things that we know to be true, just like the Corinthian would, would be these. God is focused on our personal holiness and our witness. God commands us to focus on the good of our neighbor. And God created the earth and everything on the earth. These are all things we can know to be true. And considering what we know to be true relies completely on knowing what is true. We as Christians believe in objective truth. Praise God, truth isn't relative and we're all trying to figure it out and and play in this guessing game. We know objective truth. We can learn the objective truth from God's word. We read it for ourselves and then we meet with other Christians to have our thoughts and understanding formed within the biblical community that God has made available to us in the local church. This enables us to please God in the middle of a spiritual dilemma. And this will grow increasingly important as the dilemmas become more complex. Then you have to consider who is around you. That's our second consideration tonight. Consider who is around you. We see this in verses 27 and 28. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Paul provides a hypothetical scenario to help his audience see a difference in conscience. Uh, It would help to remember a a working definition of conscience. And so uh, this is what we uh, kind of came uh, came upon last week. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. And along with that definition, it's important to note that conscience produces different results for people based on different moral standards. In other words, what you believe is right and wrong is not necessarily the same as what is actually right and wrong. People have different consciences, so it is important to consider who is around you when you find yourself in a spiritual dilemma. And in this hypothetical scenario that Paul provides, there seems to be at least three 
characters. The unbeliever who is hosting, I'm going to call him Josephus. The Christian who is their guest, we'll call her Penelope. And then a new believer recently saved out of a pagan lifestyle, we'll call him Philo. Let's try our best to imagine this. Josephus is curious about these Christians he's seeing in Corinth. He meets Penelope and invites her into his home for a dinner to learn more about this man, Jesus, that she worships. She accepts because she wants to share the gospel with Josephus, and it would be rude to decline. She does, however, ask if she can bring along a friend, Philo, to which Josephus warmly says, yes, of course. They enjoy some fruits and bread at the beginning of the meal, but when Josephus places the main course in front of Penelope and Philo, Philo is stunned. The meat on his plate was obviously sacrificed and processed by the pagan temple that he used to worship at. While Josephus is in the kitchen, Philo leans over to Penelope and whispers, this has been offered in sacrifice. In other words, don't eat it. What does Penelope do? She knows that the idols down at the pagan temple are nothing. There is but one God. She knows this to be true. She also knows that she didn't really come to Josephus' house for the food, did she? But to preach the gospel to him. Will it insult him if she doesn't eat? Will it make Philo stumble if she does? This is a spiritual dilemma. And when we find ourselves in a spiritual dilemma, we must consider who is around us. And then we consider the state of their conscience. That's the third consideration. Consider the state of their conscience. And we see this in verses 29 and 30. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul makes it clear. This is a matter of conscience. And not necessarily necessarily the, the conscience of the mature Christian, but the immature Christian. Or to continue our use of the characters we've invented, it isn't the conscience of Penelope that Paul is concerned for. It's Philo's. To understand what Paul means, we have to remember, what did he say back at the beginning of this whole, he's addressing this question of food offered to idols. What did he say back in chapter 8? So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 13 say this. However, not all possess this knowledge. He's saying the knowledge of who God is as one God and that idols are nothing. Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died 
Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Your decision to eat meat offered to idols isn't really determined by what you know, but who's around. We learn back in this passage that we should balance our biblical knowledge with sacrificial love because we could sin against Christ by making a weaker brother or sister in Christ stumble. Our liberty could damage another Christian's developing conscience in such a way that they struggle to think accurately about that behavior for the rest of their life on this earth. Is it worth it? Full disclosure, I have never had as hard a time grappling with a biblical text than I did this week with the second part of verse 29. I had a hard time with it. So be encouraged. If you have a hard time with studying your Bible, so does your pastor. He says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Paul, it sounds like that's exactly what's happening here. Doesn't it? It sounds like Philo's weak conscience is determining Penelope's liberty to eat the meat. The meat that Josephus has served her for dinner. So how do we make sense of these words that the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write? And here's what I found as I continued grappling with this verse. Um, There's a helpful resource called uh, Conscience. It's a book um, that I was helped uh, by this quote. Uh, This is kind of their their commentary, their paraphrase, uh, the two authors as they think about these verses. You shouldn't eat meat that someone told you was sacrificed to idols if the result would be that the person's moral consciousness would condemn you for eating. Why should someone else's misinformed moral consciousness judge yours? I found that helpful. I kept researching. The Wycliffe Bible commentary said this, The believer must voluntarily respect the weaker conscience. What good is there in eating if it means his liberty is blamed? How can grace be said for that which offends a brother? Just helped by that. And in such a way as I continue studying through the scriptures and just repeatedly reading and reading and reading, and sometimes that works. Sometimes asking God, God, I don't see what you're saying here from the text. Holy Spirit, would you help me? He is glad to answer that prayer. And so if I can give you my personal paraphrase, this isn't scripture. This is just my best attempt to explain it. It would be like this. Why would I allow my freedom to be judged by someone else's moral compass? Why would I partake in something and allow myself to be slandered for something I know I can give thanks to God for? Paul is asking the same question we would ask in that scenario, isn't he? Why would I let someone else decide whether or not I can do something? It's a fair question. Yet Paul is so much more focused on others and the glory of God that asking those questions propels him into surrendering the right, not insisting upon it. 
Isn't that remarkable? He's asking the same question we would ask in the scenario and yet coming to a completely different outcome. When he says, why would I let somebody control what I do? He surrenders the right. He doesn't insist upon it. And so I'm helped again by that book on conscience, uh, by the authors who kind of put it this way. Christian liberty is about a Corinthian Christian at a party who has no scruples against eating meat. And just as he gets ready to dig into the slab of steak on his plate, someone sitting next to him leans over and says, don't eat it, it's been sacrificed. And for the sake of that man and his weak conscience, the meat lover puts down his fork and says, thank you for telling me that. That is the difference between Christian liberty and American liberty. An American attitude towards liberty is one that insists upon them. I'm not against the U.S. Constitution. I'm not against the Bill of Rights. As an American citizen, I enjoy my rights. Specifically, the right to assemble together and to enjoy our religious liberty as we worship the God of the Bible. But when it comes to my rights as an American citizen, you won't see me wearing an AR-15 meandering my way around the Capitol. You won't. And that's a difference. Because that is an overtly American attitude towards one's rights. And if we in the church are not careful, we will blur the lines between our American liberty and our Christian liberty to where the kindness of our Christian liberty will become corrupt with the selfishness of our American liberty. And it should be the other way around. The self-interest of our American liberties should be called into check by the selflessness of our Christian liberties. And if you're still unsure of what to do in your spiritual dilemma, another consideration for you is this. Consider what would glorify God the most. What would glorify God the most? See this in verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul presents a beautiful biblical principle to bring all that he has provided on this topic of food offered to idols into alignment. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Display His holiness in your choice. We should live out every spiritual dilemma, big or small, with this consideration in mind. With this, will this bring glory to God? In other words, would my action magnify the glory of God that does not change. It does not fluctuate. You've heard me illustrate it this way. It's like what the sun is for us, right? A hot ball of gas, nothing we can do uh, changes that. 
but you have a magnifying glass of your life and you can direct where that, that sunlight goes. Um, but what happens when you cloud that lens, when you muddy it, you do not magnify the sun. In the same way, does what you do magnify the glory of God or cloud the lens to where he is not magnified? That will help a great deal in those spiritual dilemmas that are pretty straightforward. But what about the ones that are less so? What do I do when both options seem to glorify God? Then we ask the question, what would glorify God the most? Returning to the dilemma at dinner with Josephus, Penelope, and Philo, what does Penelope do? Well, if she follows Paul's teachings, she does not eat the meat Philo warned her about. But what does she do when Josephus returns from the kitchen? She doesn't want to offend him by not eating the meat, but she also doesn't want to launch herself into some big theological debate about the sacrifices made to idols. So what would glorify God the most here? And it has to be preach the gospel, doesn't it? Isn't that what would glorify God most in this scenario? What brings God more glory than the good news of how he has rescued the world from its sin, its rebellion, its brokenness? When Josephus asked Penelope, why aren't you eating? She won't reply with, I didn't want to make Philo stumble. And she certainly wouldn't reply with, God doesn't want us eating your demonic meat. She would likely say, I'd rather continue our conversation that we were having earlier in the day. I'd like to continue talking to you about Jesus. Penelope simultaneously surrenders her rights and esteems the saving message of the gospel, thus considering what would glorify God the most in this scenario. Penelope would heed Paul's instruction to seek the good of her neighbor, not her own personal advantage. She'd think about what her actions and choices could have on many so that they may be saved. And she could be confident knowing that she's not the only one because she would, our fifth consideration, consider those before her and behind her. We should consider those before us and behind us. And we see this in our last verse, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Penelope and Philo are just made-up characters. But you know who isn't made up? The Apostle Paul. He's the real deal. He was an actual hero in the faith. He was someone who imitated the life of Jesus Christ and followed his teachings. He went before us to help us through spiritual dilemmas that we will face in our time on this earth. He was able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ or follow me as I follow Christ. Only those who faithfully and repeatedly surrender their rights for the substantial reward that awaits them in heaven can say that with a straight face. I used to have it on my social media bio back in the day. 
when I was too young to know what it was I was saying exactly. I'm glad no one was really following me back then. But now that I've been through several spiritual dilemmas in my life, I have, and having responded to some of those in faith and to my shame, some of them in flesh, I can invite others to imitate my way of life. I can live out Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I still make mistakes. I still struggle with sin. I miss the mark. I fall short of God's glory. But by God's grace, he still draws a straight line with a crooked stick like myself. And the same can be said of you. He can do the same thing with you. Are you prepared for your next spiritual dilemma? What will you consider when you're put on the spot? So I want to convey our main point for this night. When it comes to spiritual dilemmas, you must consider putting others before yourself to the glory of God. When it comes to spiritual dilemmas, you must consider putting others before yourself to the glory of God. So let's return to some of those examples at the beginning. Should I accept someone's invitation to go to their non-Christian religious service? Uh, You don't want to be rude, but it could also make for a very educational experience. But at the same time, it could put you in a compromising situation. Um, I, I was put in a situation like this. I was in San Francisco on a mission trip, and it was for educational purposes that we went to a, a Sikh temple. Uh, and so we go in, and there's a guru at the front. It's just very interesting to kind of see uh, how people worship. Uh, now it's false god. Very interesting to watch unfold. Um, But there's a part where they welcome newcomers to come and take part in some of the meal that they're sharing and bow the knee to the guru. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. The guru is not my mediator. He's not my God. I don't bow before him. It was a compromising situation, though. It was awkward. Are you ready for something like that? What about should I be active on that particular social media platform. Um, I'll just be honest with you. There are some social media platforms that are suspicious for Christians to be on. That you would choose that for your entertainment or your communication is questionable. And people follow you. And what do they see you interacting with, you posting about? Should I watch that movie or TV show? There are movies and TV shows that I have watched earlier in my life that I can never watch again because the Holy Spirit has done a sanctifying work in me so that if I was to try that out, I would not find it enjoyable. There is one director in particular. I enjoyed his movies. But there is so much violence and vulgarities, I can't do it. God prohibits that. And for you to know it would hurt my witness. 
so I don't watch them? Should I be subscribed to that news outlet? There was a news outlet that I used to enjoy interacting with, but has started to really bother me because of its narrow-minded reporting. And to share its news stories would be irresponsible of me because they have proven that they aren't a reliable news source anymore. And so what do I do? I find a well-balanced news source that is aware of its own bias, and I respect their honest view on current events. Should I drink a glass of wine at dinner? Um, I used to drink socially in college. I made the same arguments I hear today. I experienced a moment much like this dilemma at dinner. I was at a karaoke bar with some lost friends and one brother in Christ. That brother in Christ chose not to drink. I chose to drink. And I regret it because it distracted from the shared mission we had to reach our lost friends. I deeply regret that decision because it did not glorify God in the dilemma. Should I accept the invite to go to a pub for someone's birthday party? Sometime after college, I made a decision not to drink any longer. I was able to go to a pub for a friend's birthday and share with lost friends and nominal Christians about what God was doing in my life. Every one of them noticed I wasn't drinking and had something to say about it. But praise God, it led to a lot of spiritual conversations. Should I share with someone how I disagree with the pastor? Don't disagree with your pastor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I can appreciate how people have differing views. We've spoken at length about the conscience and how each person has a different moral standard. And this often comes from one's different interpretation of Scripture, as well as the human experience. It's good to discuss these things with others, and there's no one better than to discuss it with a pastor or a spiritual leader. And several of you have approached me in the last two years. I've been here, and I have so benefited from those conversations. And then lastly, should I eat what's placed in front of me at dinner in someone else's home? Maybe you have a dilemma at dinner. Maybe it's couscous. Or maybe it's something far more serious. Whatever your spiritual dilemma, consider putting others before yourself to the glory of God. Or as Paul says, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God.